In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I would like to speak to America's men for one minute. That slacker barista. I start getting full of emotion. Now we're going to build this new bridge here. Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No, I can't. Betches Up Podcast. Like, how are people surviving? Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. I'm Millie Tamaras. And this is the Betches Up Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics and occasionally entertainment when it is the story of the day. And of course it is. The Oscars were last night. You know, I originally had our Oscars debrief later in this show, but as I said, I just watched uh, the video of um, Keon hugging Harrison Ford like five times. And so I simply must discuss it here. Yeah, it was, I mean, his win was, I feel like the, they like started off the show with that. And I was true. There is something about him, these speeches that he gives, where I'm just, like, crying immediately. Okay. It's everybody. Okay. Yeah. Because I was ready to, like, up my therapy until I started saying, no, everybody is absolutely hysterical at this at the sound of this man's voice. Oh, we love a comeback story. Like, everyone loves a comeback story. I think that was, like, the biggest theme of the night. Yeah. Which people really gravitate towards. And the Oscars hasn't been really good at doing or kind of like not great I don't know yeah I felt the same way like I think well I think coming off of what was pretty much a pretty wild Oscars last year where the narrative around it was negative I would say the next day to say the least I think what they really wanted was like a wholesome show that made you feel happy and so I think to bookend it with the best supporting actor for Everything Everywhere All at Once and the best actress for Everything Everywhere All at Once with Michelle Yeoh, they were they were banking on that, which is like not that they know they don't know who's going to win going in. It's all sealed in those little envelopes. But I think they were counting on this kind of narrative of just like a wholesome show that makes you feel good. They got Jimmy Kimmel to host it again, which I feel like he's just a very Oscars hosty Oscars host. It felt very like return to form, but also like not just giving the awards to the same people that you would normally see. Maybe with the exception of Jamie Lee. Right. It was like successful in that there wasn't exactly with that exception and maybe some other things. There wasn't like a, obviously last year was the slap, but even before that, there was usually a notable moment from the ceremony that just felt like kind of a bummer. And even if it was matched by something super kind of like euphoric. So this definitely seemed like one of the more, one of the more steady, steady ceremonies. Yeah. I always think back to the year where they clearly thought Chadwick Boseman was go- was going to win and they like kind of arranged the entire ceremony yeah. around definitely thinking he was going to win. And then 
Anthony Hopkins one and he wasn't even there and they just were like and that's the show bye and it's like this one came out I think the way that they actually wanted well the Anthony Hopkins win I mean that movie was so good though and like (laughs) it really I don't know that movie and what Chadwick was nominated for wasn't great I will say that to many people, the whale winning an Oscar is a bummer, um, you know, because of its disgusting, fat phobic, um, ten, you know, tendencies and, and you know, and uh, philosophy, or whatever. But it being Brendan Fraser has canceled that out. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, again, we're getting everything everywhere all at once celebrated, which is great. But, you, you know, like. Movies like Tar that really make like really challenging statements like are I don't think Tar won any Oscars, which no. is so so shocking. Or you know, somebody like Angela Bassett, which you know you can argue um, maybe let's Black Panther about, wasn't. Let's talk the best. about that award yeah. next because I think that's a really good place since we all mentioned it. So you know, I think that was sort of the biggest award where people were a little bit confused for a couple of reasons. Angela Bassett. Um, you know, Millie, you'll talk about the whether the the fact the specific movie played into how she was evaluated there. But Jamie Lee Curtis won the award for Best Supporting Actress for Everything Everywhere All at Once. And this made people feel some type of way for a few reasons. Um, you know, she's not in the movie very long. She's in it for about 17 minutes. She's great in it. To me, she kind of plays Jamie Lee Curtis in it. But um, you know, Stephanie, she was also nominated in that character, in that, in that category, who was a very significant character, really the like emotional. I mean, all three of the the mom, the dad, and her are really emotionally carry the film but certainly to me to a greater extent than Jamie Lee Curtis so those that was a an interesting um choice Millie what were you gonna say yeah you know the Oscars always has this thing where it kind of happened similarly a few years ago well there's two things right one thing is like the Oscars will celebrate somebody's whole career with a win and it's not necessarily with that specific award And another thing that I've noticed the Oscars does is if there's a really good film created and led by people of color, they will find the one legacy, (laughs) you know, white actor, like, and all I'm thinking of is Creed, um, how Sylvester Stallone won his Oscar. And, Mm. um, you know, like, even though directed by Black director, you know, Michael B. Jordan did great in it. But again, it's like finding that one. And honestly, I can't help but think like everything everywhere all at once and um, Creed and other examples, those movies would not even have been sold if it didn't have a big name actor, Hmm. a big name white actor in a supporting role that has a minimal thing is what gets it sold. And that's what gets it celebrated. And it's just like a little bit of a depressing thing. Um, Another thing too is, Last week, there were discussions about anonymous Oscar um, people in the Academy speaking frankly about, you know, their opinions about the woke agenda and all that shit. Hmm. And there were some really like volatile, disgusting things said about Viola Davis, Daniel Deadweiler. It's just like, you guys are invited, you know, what, what you want us to like bend over backwards and I think that's a big conversation that we're also missing too is like 
we've talked about Andrea Riseborough and how four white actors like got her nominated for a movie no one watched and how Woman King was completely snubbed. And that was like a great movie that a lot of people consumed or nope. Another great movie that had that a lot of fucking people watched that had deep meaning and everything and is checking all their boxes and it's Mm -hmm. just not. So it's like, you know, it feels a little complicated where it's like on one end, it's like great that we're making these strides and these strides came after literally a century of people putting up with bullshit, but we still have a long way to go and they're still not accepting like, or celebrating the things that need to be celebrated in my opinion. Um, and it just, you know, as we talk about with the Grammys and literally every award show has this issue. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think that Millie hit it on the head where they, where, when she was saying like, sometimes the Oscars just wants to award an entire career and they use a particular nomination as a vehicle to do it. I think about how like Leonardo DiCaprio got his Oscar for like the Revenant or whatever. It's like, sometimes they just give it to to someone because they feel like it's their time. And I think that's what happened with Jamie Lee Curtis. I like Jamie Lee Curtis. I think she actually had a great statement after the Oscars about um, like what it would mean to de-gender the categories and how we need to do that. But Mm -hmm. how that also brings up other problems where potentially we would then be seeing more like women or gender non-conforming people shut out than actually brought in. So anyway, I think she's great. It is just wild for her to get awarded for that movie over Stephanie Hsu when Stephanie Hsu played two characters essentially in the movie and had, uh, if you haven't seen like her audition for it is all over social media because it's just really good. So if you're going to award someone from everything everywhere in the best supporting actress category, it is wild to go with Jamie Lee And then obviously there's like the Angela Bassett snub. I think Um, Jimmy Kimmel actually like had a line in his intro where he referenced what went on with the woman King and till and that people were shut out, which I thought was an earnest way, not like a joke. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was, I I thought he, I think he's like a very apt Oscars host and like, yeah, good job. Yeah. I think he Um, had probably a really short leash and he was like, no problem. (laughs) Yeah, he. I don't think he, like, belabored the slap of it all too much. A totally. couple of jokes yeah. that I think were, like, within bounds and good. Um, I put some so. of his jokes. Later on, we actually have a joke rating segment, and some of his jokes are in there that we can go over. <laughs> That's yeah. beautiful. Um, but, yeah, I thought overall it was a good ceremony. I think it represented a lot of progress. I was – I really was worried that we were going to see – everything everywhere gets shut out of one of the major awards just on principle. Like maybe they again would like give best picture to the Fablemans randomly or mm-hmm. something like that. Or like the rank choice might've messed it up or not, exactly. not messed it up. I mean, the point is that it gets the movies everybody liked, but I was definitely, I think we said this on an earlier podcast that like I was worried that maybe if enough people didn't put that one like second, maybe there would be a different yeah, movie so that split I- the vo- vote. I was very pleasantly surprised with that. I think the Brendan Fraser of it all is really interesting because he is such a likable person, but that movie is extremely problematic. And there was also a moment where they won that movie won for best um, makeup. And it's, it was jarring because they first of all <laughs> used like this really weird still of like the CGI body that they created for Brendan Fraser in that movie, 
which is clearly designed for you to look at it and go like, ew, blah. So that was, I think, my, I would say the lowest point of the night was the whale winning for the best makeup award because it just kind of went to, sh- it, it spoke to all of the problems with the whale Absolutely. in general. I mean, really, you know, reading a synopsis of the movie is like really what people in the body positivity and frankly, even more radical, the fat liberation movement want to step away from. And it's that fat people are lazy, shameful, no discipline, and they just eat as much as possible and they're going to fucking die younger and they can't even walk and they're going to choke on a sandwich. That's literally the arc of that. And like, if you're fat, it's because of your shame. Here's your, you know what I mean? It's not like showing the reality. It's like a lot of fat people walk a lot and (laughs) exercise and eat well and have stamina and like live or fucking you cannot watch a season of my 600 pound life where one of those women are not are single like all of them (laughs) have multiple boyfriends like that you know and like fat people can live these great lives and it's just like all these things that people have really really worked hard to do it you know and i mean i like literally go into comments now <laughs> any any video i post anything will just be like well you're fat so <laughs> it's just like cool um yeah great let's celebrate the way <laughs> it's yeah just like, yeah it's it seems so like the academy is just i mean obviously we are nowhere near we need to be with like just body neutrality as a society but it seems like the oscar voters are a bit behind like even the mainstream. I mean, to like award, yeah. I mean, because obviously implicit in the awarding them from hair and makeup is just like hire a fat actor and then you didn't need this, right? Like, what are you celebrating? It's like you, yeah, every everything Millie said, it was it was very bizarre and it feels like something that people should know by now. Uh yeah. Shouldn't be it was really it was really weird to hear them win the makeup award because it was basically because after each one, like they did a thing, which I thought was cool for most of them, where they talked about, especially for the technical awards, like what was required or whatever. And for the whale winning, it was like the basic synopsis was like, they have made new innovations in fat suit technology <laughs> that made the Jesus. fat suit even more realistic. And I'm like, we shouldn't be having these mm-hmm. in movies. We don't need better fat all. suit technology. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think that on the compared with what I would call Ozempic's biggest night, because I mm-hmm, noticed mm-hmm. it that all yes, these celebrities are looking list. really thin yeah. in a very specific way. It I think it's particularly grotesque. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's particularly Look grotesque to be like, here we all are on our with our Ozempic bodies and we're gonna do this weird like awarding a fat suit. For, yeah. Well I well, really quickly before we go to the Ozempic of it all, like the other nominees, I would say are more impressive. Like the other nominees were Elvis, the Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Come the on. Batman, and All Quiet on the Western Front. We're talking period pieces. We're talking like replications of iconic high st- hairstyles or even just fantasy where like characters and stuff. Batman, one can say, like is taking these comic book characters and making them realistic and gritty and whatever. And 
It's just like again yeah. versus like updates in fat suit technology. It's like, <laughs> oh Jesus, like what are we celebrating? You know? Yeah, what are we trying to like motivate and kind of incentivize here? Other headlines, obviously still everything everywhere all at once was the triumph of the evening. It picked up, you know, most of the big awards that it was hoping to. And it was Michelle Yeoh's night who accepted her award, you know, definitely with the implicit acknowledgement that she was the first Asian woman to do so. And only, I can't believe this. I thought this was an error. Only the second woman of color to win this award. The mm-hmm, only yeah. person before her was Halle Berry, which present, who presented it to her last night. It was especially meaningful. And she's only the fourth woman of color to win an acting award ever since the Oscars were held in 1929 ever ever well it's that's, crazy. it's super disappointing because holly berry won for being a prostitute yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like like a, like it was also like the role she won for was insulting i think that when we're talking about like women of color you know maybe this is my bias as a buddhist and whatever but i think um angela bassett in what's love got to do with it which was i think one of her first oscar nominations like that should have been the thing that she won for you know like she really worked fucking hard to be tina turner and play this in in crazy like insane story about domestic violence and abuse and like who you know like well, like you were saying, I mean, I think that the Academy does often reward a lifetime when it wants mm-hmm. to. I mean, they could have made that case with Angela Bassett. Like you could have made exactly. the case that this wasn't her moment with that movie. Um, yeah. But you could have also made the opposite case, which are the case they clearly seem to make for Jamie Lee Curtis was that it was her moment. She had deserved it. I think Michelle Yeoh, probably the reason she definitely won, you know, have to be twice as good and work twice as hard is because I think she had both. This was a career capstone and there is not a single human being on the planet that could have done what she did in that movie. So like she was, she was on lock, but yeah, like you said, I mean, the, the Academy awards people for lifetime achievement via one-time performances, but only certain people. Um, I'm curious to see if they have that opportunity again, if they'll, if they'll take it. Like, I don't really, was the whale really like the best performance of Brent? Maybe, maybe it was. I didn't see it. Did you guys see it? No, I did not watch the whale. I didn't want to. I didn't want to play into that. But I loved Colin Farrell in Banshees of Inisherin, and I really wanted a call. I really wanted cute little Colin to get it. But <laughs> where you never was or something. Yeah, where you never were nice. No, and also if we're talking side by side performance of Angela Bassett in Black Panther. And Jamie Lee Curtis and everything, everywhere, all at once. Angela Bassett's playing a mother who lost her husband and uh, her son. Yeah. And, like, has to lead a... You know what I mean? Like, that. she's just given, like, way more than Jamie Lee Curtis who plays a, yeah, a bitch-ass yeah. tax accountant who falls in love with hot dog fingers. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, it's just sort of like, what are you looking for? It, it feels like... Um, some years it just feels like a crapshoot um, in certain, in certain well, categories. It's giving Harry Styles album of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Over Beyonce. Yes. yes, exactly. And finally, yes, you know, we have a, a wellness podcast in the Betches universe called Diet Starts Tomorrow that has definitely addressed the Ozempic topic. But um, I think this is our way in. It was definitely, it was, I saw some people, like you said, Elise, there's like a specific look. It's like suddenly you're just like all bones. And I saw a couple of that last night and it is just very surprising. I mean, Andy, Andy Cohen has said that like every new housewife he sees is like 25 pounds lighter. And it just makes me feel, I feel like we were, we've talked a bit about how this, you know, the body positivity kind of bubble might be popping. And if thin is coming back in, 
And I feel like the only thing keeping thin from coming back in is the fact that it's not achievable naturally for most people. But if now people have this like hack that they're using, it's weird. I found it to be extremely noticeable. And obviously, always at the Oscars, you're seeing a lot of really thin actresses. But it it was visible on especially just all of the female bodies were so thin at this Oscars. And um, a lot of like silver ethereal looks, which I liked just fine. I think that the Academy probably should have let them know they were also going to have like a white carpet because <laughs> it everyone disgusting was disgusting by the end too. Of, it, it was also, it was just kind of like this weird thing of white, but everyone looked like just a little thin fairy floating by on a cloud. And I was like, they did. this is, it, it creeped me out a little bit. Yeah, everybody looked kind of like an emaciated bridesmaid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hopefully the Oscars will learn from their mistakes. Also, last super notable thing, another like first that is crazy is that Ruthie Carter became the first black woman to win two Oscars, which is And that was for also, costumes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. She yes, was costumes exactly. yeah. for Black Panther. For Black Panther for both the Black Panthers, which honestly well deserved. I always love when the costume ladies get up there. It's like one of my favorite parts of the night because they're always they always have on like a cool out there kind of like wacky lady outfit. And like Ruthie Carter had hers. But I feel like every time every year you're there's always like just kind of like a wacky lady gets to it's get like up the and purest, accept her award. highest brow version of the wacky art teacher. Yes. 100%. And it's, it's always such a special moment. Yes. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits healthier hair and skin. Yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great. It looks fancy on the shelf. And I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. 
They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash fever dream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash fever dream. That's P-R-O-S-E.com slash fever dream. All right, a dramatic pivot here, but in the in the headlines this week is that three years ago today, it was our last day full-time in the Betch's office that none of us ever went back to, uh, just two days after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. The death toll, I feel, ugh, I'm like sweating and, and starting to feel some type of way even going over these, but I think that's why we're talking about it. So the death toll from this virus, near 7 million worldwide, on Friday, John Hopkins the iconic COVID tracker, they stopped collecting (laughs) their data. So about, they started collecting it on January 22nd, 2020, and they shut it down on March 10th, 2023. They're obviously going to have all that data archived, but they're no longer tracking it. Vaccines and immunity from infections over these three years have resulted in the degree of normalcy that we see now. It's just so interesting to think that we were thinking, how do we get it? How does this end? And it's like, okay, well, herd immunity. And at the time, I don't think any of us were willing to accept that was going to take three years, but that's approximately where we're at now. But the curve is not totally flat. Remember flatten the curve? The curve is not totally flat. flat the curve. (laughs) The fact remains that this is a dangerous disease now endemic to our society. Countless Americans suffer from long COVID, and many are unable to access normal parts of society due to ongoing risks of exposure. There are people that just cannot, uh, that either couldn't take the vaccine or still are at risk. Plenty of people are still getting sick, and they just, they're not able to function in, in life, and they have not since 2020. Uh, or to the extent that other people can. The daily death toll worldwide is around 1,000, you know, which seems small compared to other points during the pandemic, but it's still 1,000 people more dying from a disease than they did, you know, before 2020. That's just the world we kind of live in now. You know, we all lived it. We don't need to reflect too much on those on those early days. I don't think it feels good to anybody, and I think we can leave that mostly to uh, the healthcare workers who really saw some shit. I found that's what I was most uh, impacted by over the weekend is I saw a lot of healthcare workers sharing, resharing their original kind of, um, their, their original statements and their original pics, pictures and from, from that happening. And it's surreal. Yeah. I, it's interesting because there, there's been a thing on going around on Twitter lately. I'm not sure if either of you oh, saw the it. Mental health. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's mental like health BBC. was minimal. Yeah, some BBC article was like, study finds that mental health crisis from pandemic was minimal. And then it was just all people sharing crazy pictures from the beginning of the pandemic when they were like, I made a friend out of eggs and they <laughs> talked to it. And then they eventually had to add context. I, I literally have the tweet in front of me right now. It's really funny. The added context is the review did not look at lower income countries or children, or young people with existing problems, or any of any disadvantaged <laughs> groups. So basically, they were like, rich white men were okay. <laughs> um, so that kind of had me like back in the early pandemic headspace, just thinking about how wild that time period was, and yeah. how like scary. I mean, I remember like, before we knew anything about the virus. So you're like, wiping down all of your packages and like this was an apartment that we eventually fled because we couldn't stand to be in it for even one more second but 
I remember my downstairs neighbor, there were three apartments in the building that I was in when the pandemic first started. Um, the guy right next door to us started to descend into alcoholism and was oh, hiding um, was hiding beers in the hallway of the apartment so that his wife wouldn't find them and then actually vomited on our doorstep. And we had to scream at him through the door to be like, you vomited on our doorstep. Oh, There's a pandemic. <laughs> like You have oh, to clean God. it up. And then our downstairs neighbor. Um, so we did not see her for a really long time, but she started to get a really large number of packages delivered to the apartment, but she wasn't taking any of them into the house. So they were filling up the front room of hallway of the apartment, which wasn't really big. They were filling it up, filling it up, filling it up. And so eventually we like slipped a note under her door that was like, Hey, what's going on with all the packages? Like you got to take the packages in they're all for you. And then like the RA of your whole building. (laughs) We, we had to be. And then she wrote a long note that she taped to the door. It was like a scroll. It was like really long. And she was basically like, I have like serious anxiety about the pandemic. And anytime anyone walks in or out of the apartment building. So when we would go out for like our little walk, I re-quarantine my packages and will not bring them inside for another 72 hours. And we were, we had to slip her another note and be like, Totally respect that. We're going to throw away all of your packages if you don't take them inside. (laughs) Because nobody's not leaving for 72 hours. There's no 72-hour window where nobody's walking outside. We were just like, you have to figure out something else. And then that (laughs) night, I remember I heard – it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I heard like weird sounds outside my window, and I peered out, and it was her in a hazmat suit – washing all the packages so she has um, had yeah no minimal mental health impact minimal Minimal. mental health impact wow (laughs) that's crazy i don't think you ever told that story on the podcast because at the time it was probably too dark do you have any like that millie (laughs) i have so many dark stories like i was from the pandemic from the pandemic oh my god i was in london so i i was in europe and i almost got cut off i I don't cut it almost this would have been like right three years ago yeah, right three years ago, I was in London. I got the memory of like you were whatever. Um, oh no! So that like I I had to I had to quarantine earlier. I had neighbors that I mean just personal, and then I'll just think about the macro, the, yeah, yeah, the we'll miniature next, macro. Yeah. But um, I had neighbors who I shared a wall with. I guess before the pandemic, I really didn't care. Like my life was all spent outside of my home. And it, it it did mark a shift for me on like really being concerned about where I actually live and make a habitable space that I want to spend time with and want to bring friends with. Because before it was like, yeah, my apartment's a piece of shit, but I'm never home. It's in a good location, whatever. And that shifted to like, I don't really like, I, you know, I can sacrifice not being by all the restaurants and gyms to like have a place where I want to spend my time and like be at peace. You know, I had a, I had a wall that I shared with my neighbors and um, they would get into these really intense, like verbal shouting matches. They were a queer couple too. So it just wasn't always clear. Like I think the power dynamics of abuse are clearer when it's like a man and a woman, unfortunately, but when it's two men, you're like, Mm, what's going on? Is this just like a normal fight or whatever? And I felt bad. Like you just I, have two men it, yelling outside your door, which is never doesn't feel good. Well, I'm in my in my apartment, and it was like every few hours, and then blasting music. 
And it was just a point where like, I couldn't process things that were going on in my family and like funeral and all that stuff because I just had these guys like their own paranoia and my shit. And I felt bad, but I'm just like, I called the cops on them and that was like terrible. But I'm also like, in my head, I'm like two things, you know, because it was clear one partner was yelling at the other. But in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm only going to call the cops when it's abuse, like mm-hmm. children, animals, or or partners. Like that's my internal rule. Mm-hmm. I think for, so. I think like the shift in like making a nest was big for me. I think like in the time, you know, I was lonely a lot of the pandemic. You know, I was by myself. My roommate was out of town, and it was just this like influx of like scary lonely people on dating apps. And like, mm-hmm. I think that really I can speak to, I really dated so much differently. I, that's when I really learned how to date in the pandemic because it was like, before it was like, Oh, this guy's cute. I'm going to go out with this guy. But now it was like the filtering process was much different. Or I'm like, what, do I want to risk my life <laughs> to see this, to spend time with this person? And it's like, usually no. And it's like, oh, okay. But it's also like, oh, wait, I remember you had to stand about this. It's like, do I want to risk my life to sit in a park in December in 30 degrees with this person? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was also like, well, what am I looking for? And like, what characteristics? And it helped me like really with the work of my therapist, like really redefine like, kind of a syllabus of like things I'm looking for before I go on a date and like just like really checking in boxes because before I was just going out with everybody but it's like oh no now I have to like be really selective um so I think that was important and like just understanding that like space I think in a bigger scale I think for the most part big things that have shifted in this country from the pandemic is like rethinking labor, labor, essential labor, um, how important grocery store workers are. You know, I used to work at a grocery store. I worked at a grocery store. I re- I was like fucking held hostage during Hurricane Sandy and I had to work at a grocery store. And it's just like how much we don't appreciate the people who give us our mail, take care of, you know, whatever. So that was interesting. The role of women, we talk about that all the time, about like how the domestic labor is completely undervalued. The people who take care of our children or teachers and stuff, sometimes it feels like that has gone the opposite way because of the way that people are treating teachers and like fighting with them and all that stuff. But that was something for me. And like also like adolescence, like the the formative years of like teens and like young people and stuff and like now that I'm out at nightlife interacting with people whose like formative years haven't been in the pandemic, I'm like, oh my God, you please go back and get home training. Why are you like this? How come you don't know how to order a drink or talk to a waiter or this and that? And it's just like, oh, yeah, you came of age. Like you don't know how to fucking act because you're just now learning. Or like, how come you don't know how to be in a concert? So there's that. And then finally, I think like Elise was saying, which is a big thing, that I think we talked about a lot, which was also a big lesson of my like early 30s, like 20s was like how much control you have over people. And the reality is you have none. And I think people had to really like come to terms with like, you're not going to stop people from like going on walks or like what's what are, yeah. you know, like, you know, I think even people now you'll still see tweets of like, I can't believe people were sitting in the Oscars with no masks on, you know? And it's just like a, it's like a whole pen, like a whole gauge of like 
what is reasonable request or control or this and that. And I think that that those were like big lessons where I'm like, wow, like society, we have a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I relate to a lot of that. And one thing you said that like, I sent you an article recently, Millie, because it reminded me of you. It was in the slate and it's based on a book coming out. I think the article is just entitled like The Importance of Hanging Out. And the book is just that you need to hang out more. And I naturally am like a strong introvert and it's not necessarily my instinct to try to like instigate hanging out. And I find that before the pandemic, we were all a lot younger. So just like naturally social things were happening more. And sort of three years out, I'm finding that I have to take on a little bit more and like I'm working harder because I do notice that like my inclination is to kind of self-isolate, but I do feel... It's just part of the human experience, like having a co- fucking co- – it's so obvious, like having – spending a couple hours talking to other people, even though they have nothing to talk about, even if you saw them last week, just like making it a priority to hang out more because you you truly never know when you're not going to be able to and when exactly. suddenly you'll be you'll be stuck inside and it's like it's like it's like medicine. So I'd say that's how I've changed my – I've like been making a, a real effort, especially like lately as it's really started to feel normal. Like I, I personally mm. don't feel like I have any restrictions on my life in terms of like travel mm. – or what I can do right now. Um, Elise, is there anything like personal that really changed for you since 2020? Well, I mean, kind of similarly, you know, the pandemic started when I was in my 20s and I was still kind of living a really 20s life. I was doing shows all the time. I was out. I was about all day. And then I came out of the pandemic 31 years old, like in a, just a completely different space where like, uh, me and my friend Katie refer to it as like our social battery. Like my social Mm -hmm. battery just is depleted and recharges in a completely different way than it was when it went in. And sometimes, especially this year, honestly, because this year has been the most like return to normalcy year. Mm -hmm. It's felt like a little bit of a shock to me. And sometimes I have to recalibrate in my mind, like, I think that this would have been a more, it would have felt like a more gradual change in how much I do shows, how much I go out, how I hang out with people, what hanging out with people looks like. I think that would have felt, it would have been like an easier slope into it if I had just gone through those years normally. Whereas instead it feels like I went into the pandemic as a 29-year-old who was very much in her 20s doing 20s things. And I came out very much solidly as someone who's 31 and feels really differently about socializing and social things. And it has been kind of like a shock and in a way where- is connected to socializing is connected to how you get your income, I assume. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah. Exactly. When, I'm social, I mean, socialism as well. But- yes. um, <laughs> So, yes, in that, like, there is an economy of doing shows, going to shows, mm. meeting people at shows, being part of the socializing. And I was like, I think at a really high peak of doing that when the pandemic actually happened. Like, when I think back, I was like really in a like run of doing a lot of shows. And now that it's, it comes back, like, my relationship to all that stuff is just really different. And I feel like, I personally still feel a lot of conflict between this version of me that's like, you got to go out and go be doing that again. And then this other one that's like, no, actually, it's two years later. You're a different person. A lot of stuff has happened. You probably would have naturally slid into a less aggressive schedule without the pandemic anyway. But because of the pandemic, it feels really stark and intense. And so that's just something Mm. that I've found myself dealing with a lot this year of being like, 
okay, how much of my old life do I want to bring in to this new version of my mm. life? What do I want to carry over? What can I let go? What do I think is the natural consequences of just getting older versus this pandemic that happened? Like, that's been a lot of what I've been personally working through this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like, again, like, as an extrovert, I think I really struggled. And and it really did change, like, how much I go out. And I mean, I know, like, on Instagram, I'm always out. But, like, it really changed, like, my attitudes. I think the, the other day, I was just thinking through the other morning, like, I had to wake up and I was like, oh, my God. I have to go to this brunch with all these people like there's, you know, paying is a nightmare and I have to get up and I have to do all this shit with my dog and do all these things. And like, I was just really begrudging having to go out and go to this brunch. And then I like had to stop myself and I was like, Millie, you're so fortunate to have people that want to brunch with you (laughs) to be able to go to brunch, to be able to like, and it's just like, yeah, I think the pandemic really, you know, because all I wanted to do was go to a hot yoga class or a brunch or this and that. And like, it's just easy to, mm-hmm. you know, take it, you know. Not, right. And that's know. why I brought up that article again. I brought up, I forgot to mention, I brought up in terms of my own, like I'm trying to hang out more, but I think everybody has sort of like lost the the muscle to sort of like instigate hangout because it just feels like such a barrier. But it's like once you're there, it's great. So yeah, that's. I feel like a lot of people are going to relate a lot to that conversation. I mean, another thing that the pandemic really showed us was uh, the the lack of strength in our of our financial institutions and how apparently <laughs> everybody was two thousand dollars away <laughs> from from being from being impoverished. Uh, sort of related. Next up, and you heard it here second, the run on Silicon Valley Bank. We will we will go through this pretty quickly. Unless you follow finance and tech news or you're in that world personally, you might not have heard of this until last week. On Friday, Silicon Valley Bank became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of tech and lifestyle banks or startups banked with Silicon Valley. Sorry, I'll take that again. A lot of tech and lifestyle startups banked with Silicon Valley. A lot of small businesses, you may have, you may have seen some of them, um, you know, talking online over the weekend about how they were really unsure if they were going to be able to access their money. Because banks don't keep all of your cash on hand, like when you give it to them. They park it somewhere to earn more money on it. But the idea is that they should have enough capital at all times, more than enough, that their depositors can access what they need. But this bank parked too much of that money into treasury bonds when interest rates were really low, and that turned out to not be strategically wise for reasons that they definitely could have seen coming, because interest rates did increase dramatically. And Silicon Valley also didn't really prepare for like a general decrease in tech investments and funding. A lot of tech companies are just not getting the investment that they that they have previously. You've heard a lot about big tech companies doing layoffs this year. This is all connected. So uh, many of the companies banking with SVP needed to access more of their cash to stay afloat right now because they're not getting the funding that they're accustomed to right as the bank was coming up short because of those um, unwise investments. And you know, any company is, is insured by the federal government, I believe, up to $250,000. But most of the companies with this bank, an overwhelming majority, have much more than that, which over the weekend, the real question was, can they fulfill that? Like, What is going to happen if these people can't access their capital? And a lot of these factors altogether caused the rest of the market to freak out. Nobody wanted to buy Silicon Valley Bank. I think the UK version did get bought, and so the new bank has to guarantee the depositors. But in the US, federal regulators have taken it over. And again, the main question of the weekend is, what is going to happen to these companies' money? The government announced over the weekend that anyone who had money in Silicon Valley Bank will get all of it back. This isn't a bailout that taxpayers are going to pay for with hundreds of million dollars like we did for 2008 for many banks. This is coming from an insurance fund, that a federal insurance fund that all the banks pay into when that now will be majorly depleted. So that's a huge issue. 
Uh, also, the bank's own investors, though, they're not going to get any of the relief. They, you know, they knew the risk that they were taking. But um, yeah, lots of drama around this over the weekend, lots of anxiety. But why do you guys think the government did decide to step in here? Well, um, I think that that's, uh, there are a lot of systems in place for the government to step in and help banks uh, in a way that don't exist for them to step in and help people. So <laughs> whereas the government has all of these levers that they can pull when a bank fails, when they actually decide, oh, we want to give people pandemic relief or, oh, we want to forgive some student loans, it has to go through this insanely convoluted process where it can get struck down by the Supreme Court and da 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 because the system is built to help corporations and banks and money and not people. Socialism for me, but not for mm -hmm. thee. Mm -hmm. I think that it's still like that whole philosophy of trickle down that these people suffering mass losses, which I don't even doubt will affect yeah. other people. But I think what Elise is saying and, you know, what it's speaking to is that um, this kind of thought process is not working the other way around. Like we said, even last week, when we have an entire generation of people who can't afford to buy homes or this and that, it's not this, you know, there's not this thinking of like, how are the lowest, the, the, the poorest people of our country can't even like not being able to afford out, you know, um, food and, and water and, and shelter. How is that going to affect the, the top? Like that's never a thing, but it's always the other way around. I think, you know, obviously like the government should be helping everybody. You know what I mean? So it's not that I think that they shouldn't be bailing these people out, but at the same time, it is like these pe th these people do always fight regulation. They do believe that they are above point. like above any kind of government thing. They like to see themselves as unpolitical or nonpartisan and all of that shit. Um, so in another way, it's and they if you personally ask them, like a lot of those people are libertarians or don't believe that the government should be helping out anybody. And some, some are making the case that there is a specific change that Trump rolled back to Dodd-Frank that could have potentially, it was a deregulation of some sort that like made them have to like check in yeah, and prove that they were ago. solvent enough. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I do also wonder the Elizabeth Holmes of it all of like what's getting people like more anxious or, apprehensive but before throwing which they should be right like people right. should not just be investing blindly into tech companies just because of this person or that because a cute girl says she invented a magic box <laughs> and put it in anti-abortion walgreens yeah an anti-abortion yeah. walgreens yeah fuck off but exactly like these people have been advocating for deregulation, believe in small government so they can do whatever they fucking want. And then at the same time, we've seen enough frauds. Like this has all like perfectly amalgamated into this. Is amalgamated a word? Who knows? Um, <laughs> I know what come, you mean. To, yeah, like an amalgamation <laughs> of all these problems that now has this effect. And the only thing that this is, you know, this is, Sowing even more disunity in like politics of like, oh, so Biden, they can come up, which is true, like they can come up with money so quickly, but like my student loans are 
uh, in the background. It's just like, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Win. I mean, you do have to be like, yeah. Basically, I think there's lots of technicalities here, but basically at the end of the day where there's a will, there's a way. And if there's a will to, um, you know, bail out, I know it's not the government, but they're like, well, this isn't a bailout. But um, it's not going to demotivate, like you said, like these people that are not taking any risks with their money if they know that the government's going to bail them out because the government is like, I understand what they're saying. They're like, the faith in the banking system is pretty important. So if we don't if we don't step yeah. in here, things are going to be a lot, a lot worse. But again, where there's a yeah. will, there's a way. Things are a lot worse for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, I think the thing that just really jumps out at me is like, again, number one, a fund exists, the FDIC like exists at the ready to like tap into to deal with this kind of thing. So again, it's like, so many things are available when a bank fails for like the government to step in and help, but there's like nothing set up to help actual people. And then number two, it's just like, you wonder how many of these venture capitalist guys are against forgiving student loans against all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. How many of these guys would say, um, you know, well, they should have, these kids should have known better. So they should have they shouldn't have signed up for the loan. So it's like when you're talking about a teenager who signed a predatory loan that they couldn't possibly understand, then it's consequences of your own actions. But when you're talking about a fucking bank that has one job, which is to be a bank and they didn't bank, th- that's not consequences of their own actions. No, then it's an emergency. What we have to intervene. We simply exactly. must intervene. Yeah, as we're talking, I'm thinking about like, oh, because if we didn't intervene here, it would just be consequential for everybody. It's like, do you know how much not having healthcare costs this country ultimately? Like, it's just, again, where there's a will, there's a way. And it, it is it, it is interesting that this is where they've been able to find a will. And it says a lot about who has influence over the government. Well, you know, a big point that many people are making is like, we're saying like, it's easy to speculate like these people with their libertarian or even Republican points of view, but some of these people are actually, have actually fought against affordable housing in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. And even if we're not talking about the depositors, like the bank itself, yeah. Exactly. Right, right. We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and a of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. 
Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. So we will end today with Republican You Not. Today's Republican You Not. Start campaigning for the Iowa caucus 10 months in advance. We are currently 10 months away from the Iowa caucus. As we've discussed on the podcast before, the Republican primary for president is gathering speed. Most recently announced and potential candidates have traveled to Iowa, which will be the first state to chime in there. But as we've discussed, Democrats have moved their first primary to South Carolina. So Iowa is really all about Republicans. Ron DeSantis made remarks there last week. Uh, during which he received a standing ovation for trafficking human beings to Martha's Vineyard to make a political statement. And tonight I shudder to say that Donald Trump will hold a campaign event in Iowa is an unfortunate, unfortunate sentence I just said in the year 2023. I'm sure there will be some, (sighs) some truly disturbing highlights to unpack tomorrow, but another person who thinks that they should be the Republican nominee for president in 2024 appears to me, Mike Pence. He seems to be leaning in that direction And Pence made headlines over the weekend for giving his sharpest rebuke yet to Donald Trump at a dinner held for journalists and lawmakers at the Gridiron Club. This is like kind of it seems like a correspondence dinner light. He said this is this is Mike Pence said history will hold Donald Trump accountable for January 6th. Make no mistake about it. What happened that day was a disgrace and it mocks decency to portray it in another way. President Trump was wrong. His reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. So Mike Pence says this. It's definitely the harshest he's ever been, probably not coincidentally because there weren't any cameras there or like anyone that could clip it, just people that could talk about it after. But, um, you know, again, smallest violin. Okay. Yeah. I, I bet Trump's going to Trump's gonna really lay some into, uh, lay wait. into Pence and DeSantis tonight. He's been calling DeSantis I tiny know. D. You see that? Yeah, and I'm like, why did you leave? By, why did you leave Meatball Ron? Meatball Ron got yeah, really Meatball good. Meatball Ron was good. People, I feel like people responded really well to Meatball Ron, but whatever. Yeah, I think Trump. Trump just, you know, the thing is that he off the dome comes up with these different nicknames. He doesn't stick to one. He'll go over and he'll tell yeah. you the same thing eight He's different A-B ways. Testing and hopefully he. I've, yeah, A B testing, seeing what. Yeah, that's that's smart. I think also Mike Pence saying history uh, will hold Donald Trump accountable. How about you hold Donald <laughs> Trump accountable? Let's yeah. start with you. We also how have about mechanisms. We make our own history. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about you fucking do it first, you coward? Yeah. Why don't like, you fucking please. testify? Why are you fighting your subpoena, Mr. Pence? Yeah. Dickhead. What are you talking about history? Right. Like, 
You're trying to fucking cancel critical race theory. <laughs> like, you think history, history like, will remember it well? <laughs> Unless you have anything no, to do with it. Uh, y'all are actually actively fighting against people remembering anything. So Tucker Carlson is literally on TV right now using doctored footage of the insurrection that was provided to him by the Republican Speaker of the House. It's really to sick. try to rewrite history on this exact issue. So what are you fucking talking about? Mm-hmm. For real. That does bring us to we I want to discuss Jimmy Kimmel's joke, but you know, I also want to talk about a couple more jokes between the Gridiron Dinner and the Oscars. We were treated to a lot of political jokes over the weekend. The Gridiron Dinner, it's not televised, but Politico rounded up a bunch of jokes. And since I have two working professional comedians in our midst, mm-hmm. both with recent hugely successful outings in New York City, <laughs> I, I would think you should offer some feedback. So I am going to read some of these jokes, and you girls will each give your own ratings on a scale of one to five, one being a bad joke of zero value and five being a very good joke. Gridiron dinner. Is that what it is? Yes. I think it's a dinner at a place called the gridiron club. Sounds like the most Republican shit I've ever heard. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know what a gridiron is. NFL. No, it's like a football thing. Oh, got it. Got it. Yes. Well, one and Dr. Fauci was there and it was funny because I did see one picture where I I mean this isn't funny, but a woman like got lightheaded. Well, like, this said that she got lightheaded and hit her head on the table and then fell over. And people were like, Is there a doctor in the house? And then the picture is just of Dr. Fauci, like, okay, just helping her. Okay, but joke rating. We're gonna start with some of Mike Pence's jokes because he made some jokes. Okay. Or he had somebody write some jokes for him. First one, I always wanted to be the bad boy, the rebel type, the hellraiser, Mike Pence said, you know, someone like Mitt Romney. Rate this joke from one to five. Five being good, zero being bad. Yeah, let's do zero being bad instead of one. I give it a four. Yeah, I was going to put it. I need to hear the delivery to like really know if he brought it home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was going to give it a three. I think there's a good um, misdirect here. Yes. Um, Yes. And it is a burn on Mitt Romney. So there Mm -hmm. you go. Yeah, I think that's very like again yeah. taking what we know about Mitt Romney and turning it on its head. Love it. Continue. Yeah, I was just thinking recently, and I think about this a lot. Just that, like Mitt Romney's wearing those garments all the time, isn't he? Just always wearing them. Those long underwear. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mike Pence next. My preferred pronouns are thou and thine. Mm. Zero to five. Zero. 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 Hack. It's all been done. It's mm-hmm. all been done. Literally, what does like, dine mean? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, he said this after making another joke about how his kids' names were like Jedediah, Obadiah, and I was like, "This is too close. Not all of this is too close." Right. So he's yeah. supposed to be like, "I'm religious, so my pronouns are thou and thine." It's just, it's, it's been done. Corny. You know, it's also corny. corny, transphobic, and all that stuff. But like, given that. I think Roseanne Barr just did a whole <laughs> horrible, she horrible just had thing a now. whole ass fucking comedy special where she's like, my pronouns exactly. are kiss my ass. Like it's just like that's we've what it's done giving. It. That's what it's giving. We've we've get, we've seen it all. You identify as an attack helicopter. I get it. I've seen it. He wanted to seem self-deprecating, but also embrace that very hack rejection of preferred yeah. pronouns so yeah. if we're gonna do a hack rejection my pitch is my pronouns are i love my mommy <laughs> <laughs> i love my mother um, all right and that would be self-deprecating yeah that would get him above a zero all right mike pence this next one this next one's rough 
Pete Buttigieg took two months maternity leave, whereupon thousands of travelers were stranded in airports, the air traffic system shut down, and airplanes nearly collided on our runways. Pete is the only human in history to have a child, and everyone else gets postpartum depression. I will remind you that Buttigieg has twin infants. They were born prematurely. They got RSV, which is very serious for infants, and uh, one of them was hospitalized for a long time and was on a ventilator. The run-up to the... It, it, there's too much explanation up front. The mm-hmm, joke is yeah, too mm-hmm. top heavy, mm-hmm. and <laughs> I think it needs to be refined down. Also, he took paternity leave, which is a thing. Mm-hmm. He didn't take maternity leave. Well, that's kind of the joke too. Is that Pete Buttigieg is a girl? Gross. Yeah, he so said quote like, maternity leave. Yeah, so it's like, so it's like making so okay. At its core, it's making fun of taking maternity leave. Then it's making fun of postpartum depression. Then it's making fun of people to judge because he's gay, LOL. Like, being gay is funny. So, whatever, fuck that. But at at its core, like, when we're talking about jokes that don't work or do work, if you have to explain all this (laughs) shit about people, like... He, there are obvious fuck ups that Buttigieg <laughs> could have done, but he picked the most whatever. So it's like it's not a good joke. You're explaining too much, like Elise said. So it's yeah. like, and he never would have said this about a woman ever, never. No. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He said thou then. I don't think that he's allowed to reference women. I don't think he's allowed oh, yeah. to say to talk about women. So he should have just tossed this cut. one. This was a failed workaround. So next is New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. What's he got? So he was talking about the differences in Biden and Trump's ages, and he was like, Biden's 82 and Trump is 78, and then he made this joke. That's just three and a half years difference. What's the big deal? Although at certain points in life, three and a half years can make a big difference. Just ask our old friend, Matt Gates. Oh, shit. Wow. Okay. Five out of five. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I appreciate him going there. I appreciate Mm -hmm. him being bold. I would say maybe again a little bit top heavy, a little bit too much I cut a explanation. Lot out. Yeah. yeah, there's a little yeah. bit too much going up at the top. I think all you have to do is say uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are only three and a half years apart, and then go into the rest of the joke. But uh, for going there on Matt Gates, I will also give it a five out of five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, personally, I give it a five out of five. Um, because I feel like people are really like forgetting the Matt Gates thing. I don't think he's getting right. nearly enough like shit. I think in a perfect world, people would bring it up all the time. He should not be able to eat dinner, do <laughs> do any speaking engagement without someone bringing up that he paid for a seventeen year old sex worker on Venmo as a government official. Yes, and just because the government, the Justice Department couldn't prove it doesn't mean it did not happen. Next up was Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He had a couple jokes. I think his best one was, according to the guest list, there are 600 attendees here tonight. CNN would kill for an audience like that. Oh, <laughs> sure. Okay. Sure. Um, it's run of the mill for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's safe. Coming yeah. after the, the hard-hitting joke about Matt Gates, or even like, uh, fucking Pence making fun of Mitt Romney. Yeah. It's very safe to be like, CNN doesn't get those ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, no. But it is a joke, and I do appreciate the brevity. I think that he set up punchline, he hit it, so I will give him a three. 
Okay, I'm going to give him a chance would, to exceed a three with his next one. I'm curious what you think, Millie. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, I'm the first Secretary of State in modern history to do this job while my wife and I are raising toddlers. So I hear a lot about ice cream, fast cars, and choo-choo trains. And that's just being in the Oval Office of Joe Biden. I think that one's worse for me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that relies on knowledge of like, I mean, everyone knows that Joe Biden likes air track, but... I, you know, I don't know the choo-choo, I don't know the ice cream or the car reference. You have to like have a personal knowledge of Joe Biden for you to get that joke. I will Mm -hmm. also say back to the other joke for that to be cutting as like the Matt Gates or Mitt Romney thing. It's like 600 people CNN instead of like 600 people or as Fox News likes to know 6,000 people or something like that, like how they lie. That would have been better. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of these guys, this is insider baseball for these guys. And as you know, not too many people, you know, it's hard to get mass appeal on an insider specific joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that I think that the punchline is clunky here. And that's just being in the Oval Office of Joe <laughs> Biden. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think you should just be like, I hear a lot about ice creams, fast cars and choo-choo trains. And that's just when I'm talking to the president. I don't yeah, know why yeah. we had to be like, and that yeah. is, and for, for the Oval Office of Joe yes, Biden. That is when I'm I like, enter the Oval Office, yeah. And President yeah. Robinette. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I want to end with two more of Jimmy Kimmel's, and we don't have to discuss them since we've run out of time, but I maybe you can each just rate them. So the first one is, about James Cameron, who wasn't nominated for Best Director. He's Jimmy Kimmel said, I mean, how does the Academy nom- not nominate the guy who directed Avatar? What do they think he is, a woman? I liked this joke. I thought this was a good joke. Five out of five. Number one, because it's making fun of James Cameron for being an asshole, which he is an asshole. It's really, literally me and Danny were talking about this on our like evening walk after the Oscars with Rusty, that it's just like, you're really going to be so salty you didn't get a Best Director nomination on your movie that you know doesn't deserve a Best Director nomination in a time where women are overlooked for this nomination all the no time. No women were nominated. No, no women like were they nominated. Never are. Not even, not not even a woman talking, which won Best Adapted Screenplay, and it was the same bitch who fucking wrote like <laughs> Yeah. Sarah yeah, Foley. So- yeah, so it hits on two two things for me. Number one, it brings up an important issue, which is women consistently being overlooked in the best director category. Uh, and number two, it makes fun of James Cameron. And for those reasons, I will give it a five out of five. I liked this joke. And finally... Everyone loved Top Gun. Everybody. I mean, Tom Cruise with his shirt off in that beach football scene. Elron, hubba hubba. I mean, how many points does he get just for saying that? To El- I mean, I guess Jimmy Kimmel, like he's not he's not striving, but zero to five for the for the Scientology dig. I'm gonna give uh I'm gonna give that joke out of zero to five a nine one one because the Scientologist <laughs> will be after him, stacking him in his bushes, and he will go missing. Where is Shelly Miscavige? Yeah, it's um. I don't, I don't find the joke particularly funny. Elron uh, right. Hubba Hubba is like, okay. But I appreciate coming for Scientology in their own house. Um, and I think this joke, <laughs> I think this joke is the exact reason why Tom Cruise himself didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because he knew if he did, everyone would make fun of him for being a Scientologist. And he was right. Yeah, it's a silly joke for being so uh, for being so bold and pointed. Thank you, girls. Um, I think you should you should be hired to write for the next gridiron dinner of Republicans. That is our show. <laughs> oh Until God. the end of democracy. I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Elise Morales. 
I'm Millie Tamaris. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duerman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.